Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Institute of Art and Ideas. Articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. From eating to dating, the modern world presents us with endless choices. But is this leading to lives full of anxiety and guilt? On today's episode, we're discussing happiness and freedom of choice. To help us explain the anxieties surrounding choice, we're joined remotely by philosopher, sociologist and legal theorist Renata Selectual, we have been bombarded now for like a decade or even more with all kinds of advertising on the streets like your life, your choice, or become who you want to be, or the, you have the key to your happiness. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to Renata Selectual. I'm going to speak today about the problem of anxiety of choice. Before the current corona crisis, we have been constantly encouraged to think about our lives in a matter of choice, as if everything in our lives is something we can rationally decide about, as if we can actually even rationally know what our desires are. The kind of neoliberal world in which we have been living now for some time have also given the impression that there is a way to find some kind of an enjoyment in life if we make proper choices. So we have been bombarded now for like a decade or even more with all kinds of advertising on the streets like your life, your choice, or become who you want to be, or you have the key to your happiness. Um, I even remember in London seeing an advertising life book now. So it appeared as if we live in the world where there were fewer and fewer social prohibitions in regard to who one is supposed to be and how one is supposed to achieve happiness. And that there are endless possibilities to find fulfillment. We were perceived as some kind of self-creators in this ideology. In this highly individualized society, which in a way gave priority to individuals' self-fulfillment over submission to group causes, people, however, have faced now and already in the past an anxiety-provoking dilemma, which is, who am I for myself? What do I actually want? And also, how do other people regard me? 
Now, these questions have been troubling in the last decades even more than in the past because there has been a change in the nature of social prohibitions and it appeared that we had kind of fewer and fewer authorities who were limiting our individual choices. And in these times, we also had the idea of choice as some kind of an ultimate motto. Now, while in the last decades, you know, we have been sort of dealing with this kind of anxieties in regard to individual cho choices, we have often forgotten about social choices. And this famous mantra uh, first uttered by uh, Thatcher, that there is no society, there are only individuals and their families, was you know, sort of kind of overpresent in neoliberal ideology. However, things have changed in the last couple of months. Societies started locking down, you know, measures were introduced, which started limiting individual freedoms. There have been, however, also uprisings against these lockdowns. We have seen just recently in Germany, a lot of demonstrations against uh, the measures, society, a lot of demonstrations uh, in the United States and elsewhere. Now, in the domain of medicine, we have also observed an increase of the debate about choice. Now, what we have witnessed is a certain kind of a debate centering around, you know, who has the right to choose, you know, who will get a particular kind of treatment. There was a lot of discussion in many countries which faced a lot of uh, uh, you know, casualties in regard to coronavirus, you know, about the access to the ventilators. Who is supposed to, you know, have priority if there is a lack of ventilators available? Who should be disconnected, potentially, you know, giving a place to someone else if the intensive care units become overflown with patients? Now, medical ethics committees around the world had dug into philosophical theories, trying to find support for the changes they were making. Now, roughly speaking, we were kind of dealing with four different lines of thought in regard to this terrible choice. On the one hand, there were those who insisted that the most important principle is the principle of equality, which means that everyone who finds him or herself in a situation where he or she might need help should be treated the same, regardless of his or her age or his or her other illnesses. Now, some radical proponents of such notion of equality would even choose with the help of lottery if more people, for example, were fighting for one ventilator. Now, on the other hand, there were those who advocated the logic of first come, first served. Let's say that a 90-year-old comes to the hospital just before a 20-year-old, and they both need a ventilator. 
Although the 90-year-old has much lower chance of survival than the 20-year-old, the 90-year-old was the first, which is why he gets the machine. Under the third variant of choice, we would ask ourselves who is the most difficult case. And then we would solve this one before the easier cases. Now, this kind of a logic is often at work when we are dealing with accidents or even at uh, um, ER. Now, the most widespread philosophy of choice on which many ethical recommendations around the world rely in these times is a kind of a version of utilitarianism. Some will link the selection to life expectancy, others will add the expected quality of life, and still others the question of how much a person is helping rescuing others, or in some way how replaceable potentially someone is. Let's say that with this kind of a logic, you know, the ethical committee would decide, you know, whether to help, uh, I'm giving a fictional example, whether to help a company director or a single mother. Let's say that they both come at the same time, they both need uh, intensive care help, uh, ventilator, and, you know, it might be possible if someone is following this logic of who is more replaceable than another, that the company director will fare badly because the reasoning might be we might easily find another company director, but children's parents cannot be replaced. So children are vitally dependent on a parent. And although a company might go through crisis without a director, you know, the idea might be, okay, it's easier to replace uh, a person in that position. Now, such very, very abstract considerations of choice in triage cases are mostly played out in theoretical literature. So when we are reading about triage, we would come across this kind of you know, philosophical uh, debates. In reality, the situation is much less black and white. And even the use of ventilator itself is not perceived as some kind of a panacea. In most cases, uh, physicians decide with the help of counsels, uh, you know, who actually might benefit more. They might look at the more general medical condition of a person. Uh, they might assess additional illnesses and think who might actually survive with the help of the machine. Now, in Germany, Therefore, ethical committees emphasize that there needs to be at least six eyes in the room present when such difficult decisions are made. Now, in order to avoid some arbitrary decisions about whom to help and whom not to, in the US, already at the time of the bird flu, Dr. Douglas White said about you know, kind of creating a list of guidelines to help colleagues in situations when there are there are fewer resources to make 
choices. So Douglas White has been since the birth flu writing kind of a list trying to figure out actually which guidance a doctor who needs to make this kind of terrible choice should follow. Now these guidelines should make it possible to save as many patients as possible and for as many years of life as possible. That's one of the principles that this doctor is propagating. While, you know, they should not discriminate on the basis of disability and those who are making decisions also are not supposed to look at the expected quality of life. Now, as Italians were grappling with huge numbers of patients, many Italian doctors, you know, were truly lost over this question, whom to put on a machine and help them breathe and potentially give them the chance to survive and whom not. Now, their ethical committees formulated quite authoritarian you know, recommendations. The idea was to look at who has the greatest chance of survival, who has the most life expectancy, and also how can they save as many people as possible. Now, many doctors allegedly resisted these strict utilitarian recommendations. And according to Italian media, many actually did not implement these recommendations in practice. Among the critics of such sharp utilitarian positions, we can see many questions arising over what is actually the idea of the value of life? You know, can life expectancy really be perceived as such a value? And are two lives more valuable than one? Now, if we in capitalism are so accustomed to look at the market value, the problem becomes when this logic is mapped onto the sort of our attitudes towards health and life in general. So the problem is that the whole idea of value and, you know, saving, you know, the more valuable life or the one who has more lives, uh, life in the future potentially or more lives in general, you know, has an undertone of that kind of a market logic of sort of a value which has been you know very much part of capitalism or the discourse of capitalism now the anxiety in regard to such choices that we have witnessed around us with corona crisis involve death who makes decision about death but in some way choice uh, when looking through psychoanalytical angle, you know, has always been related to death in some anxiety-provoking way. So, you know, in, in the philosophical discussions about choice, you know, we have, for example, read in the writings of Jean-Paul Sartre that the anxiety-provoking thing when we are standing in front of the abyss is not so much that we might fall. We are not anxious just 
simply that we might fall into the abyss, but we are anxious because we also have the power to throw ourselves into abyss. We have, in a way, the power to end our own life. So anxiety in regard to choice is in some way linked also to, to the power that we have in our hands to, you know, choose death or, you know, to choose life in situations like Sartre played out. Now, Danish philosopher Siren Kierkegaard also, you know, saw anxiety related to choice uh, in a kind of a particular way, which is related to, you know, an overwhelming freedom. So for Kierkegaard, anxiety provoking was in a way a possibility of possibility, you know, and that's in some way we can say also quite present in the neoliberal discourse when the perception is that everything is in our hands or at least ideologies convincing us that, you know, our life choices are very much in our hands, the anxiety provoking might for an individual be precisely that possibility of possibility, which is why quite a lot of people might be petrified to make any choices. Now, we are anxious to make choices also because they always involve a certain kind of a loss. Now, when I choose one direction in life, I lose the possibility to choose another. If in the past we were maybe choosing between, you know, possible two directions, like, you know, the famous Robert Frost uh, poem says that there, you know, there were two roads in the woods and we don't know which one to choose. In contemporary times, it is kind of many highways uh, that we have been facing. You know, it appears that choices actually have multiplied in the times where we had kind of a fewer and fewer social uh, prohibitions. So if choice is in some way linked to death or anxiety in regard to choice, choice is linked to death, we can say that in today's times of this terrible pandemic, we can have also the problem of sort of question or the question in regard to who was actually making choices in regard to life and death. If the problem of triage is one particular problem, we have learned in many societies in the last uh, month or two, also the problem that you know choices about who will live or who will die were related to you know people being you know. Uh, very old or especially in regards to people who have live who live in uh, nursing homes uh, in many societies we have witnessed a large number of people in nursing homes dying because of covid-19 and you know informations are emerging that you know there has been sometimes negligence bad organization but sometimes even you know, a little bit of a choice of not doing anything to help them. Uh, in my home country, Slovenia, we have had, you know, debates about, you know, the problem of why, you know, so many uh, infected people died 
in the nursing homes and were not transported to the hospitals. And information started emerging that there might have been, you know, a kind of a terrible choice that it is uh, possible and there are, you know, some uh, informations which show that that might actually have been the case that, you know, in advance, uh, some ad hoc committees decided that some very elderly people, in case they, uh, you know, get the virus, they get infected, might not be transported to the hospital. The anxiety probably was that hospitals will become overwhelmed. However, we were very lucky and the coronavirus actually did not proliferate in our society. We only happily so far had a little bit over 100 deaths, so hospitals were not too full. However, still many, many elder people did not get to the hospital, but stayed with the virus and often died in nursing homes. So this kind of terrible choices where someone is making a choice for you is, you know, something that we have witnessed with the current crisis. Now, since we are slowly getting out of the lockdown, and many societies are opening up, uh, many societies are, you know, maybe too quickly abandoning all the measures of precaution that were uh, helping society, you know, not to have the virus spread too much among the people. With this kind of the end of the lockdown, we also have observed a shift from the previous kind of uh, communal choices or even think communal thinking into, again, much more individualistic thinking. Now, already in the past, when society went through traumatic infections, uh, like with the plague in medieval times or with the Spanish flu, we have observed that at some point, you know, there is a certain kind of a shift to individualism. Um, we have also observed, you know, many stages of dealing with, you know, kind of a virus. Quite often, the denial might be the first stage then the search for who might be guilty for it. Or, and then quite often, one of the stages towards the end of the pandemic becomes you know, a search for enjoyment. Uh, just the de desire to party, to abandon precaution, to live as if there is no tomorrow. Um, at the, towards the end of the Spanish flu, for example, in Brazil, they observed at the carnival in Rio de Janeiro in uh, 1919, you know, people were partying as if, you know, this is like the last party in their life. A lot of, uh, you know, children were conceived there. There were also, unfortunately, a lot of rapes. And there was a kind of a desire just to forget uh, everything about, you know, the trauma of the past and the, the trauma in some way was at that time already present in some way, but people behaved as if it is the end. So the emergence of individualism or the re-emergence of individualism, it's something we might be also observing in today's times and in the near future. Now with this re-emergence of individualism, it is 
quite possible, you know, that we will again observe all kinds of anxieties in regard to choice that we have dealt in the neoliberal times so far. Now, one of the important problems with our perception of choice in, you know, in the last few decades is that we are more and more perceiving it through the loop of consumerism. Now, if historically the idea of freedom of choice has been linked to the democratization of political space, in the developed post-industrial world, choice became a theme primarily linked to kind of the idea of consumption, where you know people started perceiving actually even their own life as an object they can rationally choose. Uh, even our body was perceived as something we can make a choice about how we look, you know, uh, how uh, sort of what what kind of enjoyments we have. All this appears to be more and more perceived as a kind of a matter of rational choice. Now we have kind of forgotten the psychoanalytic uh, understandings of subjectivity which showed that you know people's rational perceptions of desires often are very different from the unconscious uh, desires and that people might rationally perceive that you know that they want to make a particular choice but in an unconscious way they might block you know their plans we also forgot that choices are very much linked to the social symbolic setting, to the society in which we live, which means that we are influenced by what other people are choosing. And that, you know, sort of customs around us, you know, and various unwritten, you know, prohibitions influence our choices. So the abundance of choices which we have witnessed in the last decades, or at least the perception of the abundance of choices, created anxiety for two reasons. On the one hand, there was kind of a more and more a perception that there is no one in charge in society anymore. Um, and second, that the freedom of choice actually does not give more power to the consumers but to the corporations which are trying to influence their desires. So a person shopping around the internet, for example, for the best product, gives corporations all kinds of information, you know, valuable data about his or her desires and spending habits, which we know now can very easily be manipulated. So on the one hand, there was an anxiety that no one is, in control, especially with sort of like the changes with traditional authorities uh, and that kind of ideology that everything is in our hands. However, there also appeared anxiety that someone might be in charge in a hidden way. And in some way, they were, you know, with the collection of big data, uh, quite easily our desires could have been manipulated by others. Now, the unfortunate Think is that when people are struggling with their choices, they often are searching for an authority who might appease their anxiety. 
which is why the demise of traditional authorities in a way opened the space for all kinds of new ad hoc authorities from life coaches to influencers on social media, celebrities, and, and so on. So this kind of a new types of, let's say, small authorities emerged as points of reference and points of identification. And we have even observed, you know, a whole new field of therapists emerging, which are kind of claiming that they can appease the anxieties of the consumers. Um, I was quite uh, uh, surprised when I observed that there is a whole business of people specializing in dress anxiety. Presumably, you know, women and to a certain point men too have experienced, uh, you know, a lot of dress anxiety with the abundance of choices that they could make and especially brides seem to be, you know, prone to this anxiety, which is why an institution by the name Calm Clinic offered, you know, online courses on how to appease the anxiety when we don't know, you know, what to choose or what kind of address to choose. Now, all this kind of anxiety shows that these questions with which I started, uh, the, the questions of who am I, what do I want, how do other people see me, you know, remain anxiety-provoking. Uh, you know, in, in some way, we have been dealing with the same anxieties, with the abundance of choices and sort of like lack of choices in the past in regard to precisely our own anxieties or the, the, over our desires, the inability actually you know, to fulfill our desires, always searching for something new, and also the inability to find an answer to how we appear to others. How do other people see us? To this kind of two dilemmas, there are no clear answers. No matter how much we ask other people, we will never get a clear answer to who are we for them. Now, in conclusion, let me say that with current crisis, we have a perception that there might be a choice in regards to the future. Which kind of a society will we choose? Will we continue the neoliberal trend, the inequality that exists in this society? Will there be a change for a better society? With the current development, I'm not too optimistic about, you know, what we will choose, but nonetheless, let's be hopeful. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.